guys can have a seat. Y'all are gonna have to listen fast today, okay? I got a lot for us. I have a question for you. Um, what do you think that we as pastors, your pastoral staff, think of themselves? Interesting question, right? We think it's an important one for you to think about. And I'm saying that word a lot, think about, but follow with me. What do you think we as pastors, thanks Chris, what do you think that we as pastors think about ourselves? What do you think we think our role is as the pastors of this church? I can tell you from my perspective and from the staff's perspective that I don't want to be your celebrity. I don't want to be your spiritual guru. I don't want to be the only person who speaks spiritual truth and imparts spiritual things into your life. I don't want to be the source of your spiritual maturity. See, I want Jesus to be all those things. I want instead to be a servant to you. I want to honor each of you with my words, with my actions. I want to see you grow into spiritual maturity. I want to see your kids come to faith in Christ. I want to see you gain victory over struggles. And I want to help you grow into this uh, ever-dynamic, ever-moving relationship with Jesus that will benefit you. I want to partner with you in your life. I want to know what's going on with you. I want to know your burdens. I want to pray with you. I want to cry with you or rejoice with you. I want to have sleepless nights agonizing over your love and devotion to this church and the people that we are connected with. This is how I see our church staff, and this is how the church staff sees themselves. This is what we believe our role is. This is what we view the elders' role as. This is how we see your deacons. This is how we see your disciple leaders. We love you. We love you. I'm trying to scan the whole room. We love you. Okay? And also on Facebook, we love you very, very much. And because we love you, we want to see you grow. And because we want to see you grow, there might be times where there has to be a tough or difficult conversation that has to occur. Not because we want to act tough or be tough or be mean because that's like in us or part of what we want to be about. Rather, we want to see something greater for you. Have you in the past ever needed a corrective moment in your life? Have you needed someone to speak into your life to have a tough conversation about something that needed to be talked about. Do you think it's possible that in the future you might have need of a spiritual mentor or elder who might have to speak some truth into your life? I'm going to say yes for me. I'll use, an, I'll use a lot of I statements today. My dad is an amazing man. Let me give you some of his credentials. He has his doctorate from uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary where he trained to be a church planner in the Middle East. His desire was to go to the hardest place on earth, to share the gospel, and to plant churches there. He's pretty hardcore. Uh, that plan didn't pan out for him, or else I'd probably be living in the Middle East right now. Uh, but it didn't stop him from being a part of an Arabic-speaking church plant that he helped charter here in Fort Worth. I think his mentality was like, if I can't go overseas, well, I'm going to do something. So he joined an Arabic-speaking church. Then he began an ESL ministry, that's English as second language, by the way, um, to teach adults English and to help them get their GEDs. He's the executive officer of this ministry called Hope, helping other people excel. They partner with churches and schools 
to teach, train, and equip really anyone, but his kind of particular niche that he's seemed to uh, grab onto or gravitate towards are refugees. So he deals with a lot of refugees um, and, and, and training them how to uh, uh, adapt to life in America. His goal ultimately, though, while he's improving their lives, giving them life skills for here in America, his ultimate goal is to share the gospel with them. And if you know anything about refugees and, and what it looks like to move from your country to this country, they are some of the most vulnerable people groups we have in our nation. My dad's pretty hardcore. Now, he's all these things, but he's also a great dad. He loves me. He loves my siblings. He loves my wife, Rachel. He loves my kids. If my dad came to me and had to have a hard conversation, I'd listen. Now, because he's my dad, I'd probably, in my mind, disagree with some stuff. Well, you know, you're saying that a little wrong, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, like as we're talking or as he had to tell me something difficult, I'd probably be going through the conversation in my mind a little bit. But even though I might disagree in the moment, I think his words would stick with me. I think they would have some lasting impact because the weight of a loving relationship that he has shown me and modeled for me, because of this loving relationship that we possess, because of all these credentials that he has, and even if he didn't have those credentials, he would still be my loving father, And when he speaks to me, there's deference, and there's love, and there's respect. And even though I might disagree on some things, I'm sure the words that he would speak to me would have some sort of lasting impact. Now, I want you to overlay everything I've just said onto how we read the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to overlay this kind of relationship that Paul has with the Corinthian church. Not only is he their church planter, he's the one who shared the gospel with them, he's one of their pastors, but he's also something so much more. He views the Corinthians as his spiritual children, and he views himself as their father. So however messy their relationship has gotten, you have to understand that as we read today, we're about to find out a little bit more about Sassy Paul in verses 6 through 13. Wherever we read some things that seem a little bit stern or a little bit direct or a little bit sarcastic or ironic or hyperbolic, whatever we see in Paul, we have to understand that there's a dynamic relationship that's moving back and forth between these Corinthians and him. So I want you to keep that in mind today as we read this chapter because this is how Paul views himself as their pastor and their father. So the way that he's going to speak to them will sound maybe different to the way that we would speak to them because they're on a different relational level. So I don't want you to judge Paul too harshly. I don't want you to think that he's being rude I want you to let his words speak for themselves and allow the weight of their relationship to hold the conversation that they're about to have. Now, if you remember back to the first three chapters, the Corinthians are saying, I belong to, somebody somebody tell me, I belong to who? Paul, I belong to? Apollos, ooh. And I belong to Cephas or Peter, if you can remember that one. But yeah, the kind of the two main people that Paul keeps bringing up over and over again is Apollos and himself. Now, they are throwing these I belong to, these slogans out at Paul, and they're also seemingly judging Paul in the way that they're talking towards him. If you remember back to last week, Paul calls them spiritual babies. They cannot handle anything besides the milk that he's giving them. But as Pastor explained to us last week, probably in the zero Corinthians correspondence, the stuff that we don't have, the letters that we don't have, they're saying those kinds of things to him in order to jab at Paul. 
to judge him a little bit. So now, as we come to chapter 4, this is going to kind of be the foundation of understanding when Paul's about to talk about judgment and how this all works together with their relationship. So, we need to ask this question, how does Paul deal with their judgments towards him? Let's start off in verses 1 and 2. A person should think of us in this way. Who's us? Hmm. That's a good question. Who's us? This is Paul. These are the leaders of the church. This is Apollos. Paul is now transitioning from talking to them in chapter 3 to now talking about himself in chapter 4. So a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the what? Mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Now, as I said, being one of your pastors really is the greatest honor of my life. It is also a heavy and important responsibility to commit myself to you. Now, that commitment is centered around and comes out of being a manager of the mystery of Christ. You guys remember what the mystery of Christ is? It's the gospel. Okay, the mystery of God. It's the, it's the gospel. It's Jesus. In fact, go ahead and circle mystery there and write out to the side gospel in your journals. We don't want to mistake what this word is at any point as we're reading through Paul. Now, it's my responsibility to relate God's word to you in a way that impacts your hearts and your minds for your growth to be more into the image of Christ. It's my responsibility also to protect you from harmful ideas and toxic people who will pull at your allegiance to Jesus. And to this church. So this is how we think of you and this is how I think Paul's going to this is what the this is the attitude the emotion that's coming behind what Paul is about to say. He loves his people. We love you. We love you so much and we believe that you are our treasure, our gift from the Lord. We think that God has blessed us, your pastoral staff, with you wonderful people. And since you're a gift, we take our responsibility to protect, to guide, and to equip very seriously. So let's listen to how Paul continues here in verses 3 through 5. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. Paul is saying, okay, I know you think I'm being a little rigid right now. I'm being a little too orthodox. You're not happy with me, but I'm willing to take the risk in you thinking those things because I love you and I take your spiritual development so seriously that I'm going to have a direct conversation with you right now. And my hope and my purpose is that you will see transformation out of what I'm going to point out to you. Because ultimately, the way that a pastor or a father would speak to their children would be with love, with honor, maybe direct sometimes, but also it it's undergirded or found the foundation is the relationship by which the pastor or the father has with their children. And so what we believe is that the Spirit of God living in me and the Spirit of God living in you will bond us together even if there are difficult things that we have to say to one another. Now, why do you think Paul brings this up? Well, 
Again, Paul begins this fourth chapter by continuing the thoughts of chapter 3. Namely, that Paul is calling the attention to the fact that each person is to be a servant of one another. Therefore, the judgments of the Corinthians directed towards Paul are unmerited because they're not even mature enough to accurately assess themselves, let alone God's apostle, Paul. The Corinthians were creating divisions. You just told me the slogans a minute ago. But not only were they creating divisions, they were proud about the divisions that they were creating. And these divisions became more important than their relationships with each other. Being right or asserting their elite status that they now held because they were in so-and-so camp or so-and-so camp were more important than actually doing the difficult work of creating unity with one another. The Corinthians are being told by their spiritual father that their judgments, their attitudes, and their jabs towards Paul will one day be brought to light and be judged by the one who actually has the right to make these kinds of judgments in the first place, and that's God himself. And really, that ought to scare us a little bit more than I think we understand. People say, well, only God can judge me. That's, that's one of those you know, kind of newer phrases. That ought to terrify us. I think I'd rather have a human judge me than God who knows all of my thoughts, intentions, and motives because I'm a little bit more wicked than I'd like to display, right? I'm a little more sinful than I'd like to display. Oftentimes the dialogue in my... If you heard the dialogue in my brain when I'm driving on I-35, you know what I'm saying? I I don't know that I want God to be the ultimate one to judge me apart from Christ, right? Right? But since I have a relationship with Christ, that judgment no longer occurs. But this is his whole point. This is a great reminder for us today that our judgments of one another should not be made in haste. Because by the same standard that I judge you, I will also be assessed. And Paul's point is that our energy does not need to be focused on judging everyone else's spiritual condition. We need to center ourselves on the wisdom of God. The wisdom of The mystery, that's the gospel, calls us to love others, to be servants of others. And in fact, Jesus has this really interesting teaching where he says, you know, don't try to take the piece of sawdust out of someone else's eye until you remove the what out of yours? The log, the plank. That's exactly the point. Quit focusing so much on other people's issues because the more you focus, the more you'll find. We all have issues The point is that we aren't supposed to rightly understand people's actions or or whatever. That's not the point. But the point is that we shouldn't be hurling jabs or insults or judgments at people whom we don't know. And this is a part of the Corinthians' problem is I'm in Apollos' camp, I'm in Paul's camp, and because I'm in here, Apollos' people are stupid. They don't understand the gospel like we do. They don't understand these transcendent spiritual truths like we do. And Apollos' people are saying the exact same thing towards Paul's people. How do you think church service even ran? You'd have one side of the room yelling, oh, one side of the room yelling, amen, just like when uh, uh, there's like a, a Senate or a House meeting, and a Republican gets up and speaks, and all the Republicans yell, and all the Democrats boo, and, and vice versa. When a Democrat gets up, all the Democrats cheer, and all the Republicans boo. Can you imagine doing church like that? Sheesh. You wouldn't get anything done, which is why... They don't get anything done. Anyways, church should not run like this. 
There should not be these divisions where I hurl insults at the other camp simply because they view something a little bit differently than me. Paul wants them to center themselves back on the gospel, and the gospel calls us to love, not to judge. So, as we read this next part, Paul is going to use um, language that we think is coming from this Zero Corinthians correspondence. Why do we think that? Well, because as you read the rest of Paul's letters, whether it's the letter to the Ephesians or the Philippians or Colossians or whatever, there's a lot of really interesting phrases that pop out of the page. There's a lot of really interesting things that get said, like spiritual milk, which Pastor brought up last week. Paul doesn't say that anywhere else but in this context. Because the Corinthians and he are having a little bit of a conflict talking back and forth, and Paul is going to bring up their words. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been provocative on purpose to make your point with your spouse? Now you're catching on with me now. Have you ever told a great story where there was a lot of lead up to the punchline? Of course. Of course you have. That's what jokes are. That's what great stories are. That's what makes uh, argumentation really good and fun to have sometimes, where there's some provocative speech that then leads into the real point that you're trying to make. So this is what Paul is about to do. He's about to use some of the Corinthians' language, not against them so much, but to perk their ears up to hear the point that he actually is trying to make. And Paul's point for the next section is that a spiritual person humbly serves others. This is what a spiritual person ought to look like, and he's going to use himself and the other apostles as an example as he does that. Let's uh, look in uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, namely to be a servant, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Now, this comes after these three chapters, so remember why he's saying some of this. The problem isn't that the Corinthians are just dividing, it's that they're very proud and claiming elite sort of status because of whose camp they're in. He continues, verse 7, For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? He's saying you can't be superior to anyone because you didn't create the story of Jesus. You don't create your own Jesus. You don't craft wisdom from God. You're not the one who came up with all of this. You merely receive the gospel and the spirit of God as a gift. And because it's a gift, you cannot boast about it. Okay, now Paul's about to get sassy. You already saw a little bit of it. Who makes you so superior? But now he's really about to, he's really about to lay it on thick, okay? Verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish that you did reign so that we could also reign with you. Listen to how Paul now describes his life and the contrast between what he's just said and how he lives. Verses 9 through 10. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in what place? Last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. Not just in the past, but even up to this moment. Verse 11, up to the present hour, we, talking about the apostles, are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, and what? Man. 
I thought Christianity was about having a really nice suit, though, and paying money to sow into somebody else's ministry. No, not really. That's not really what it's about. This is the harsh reality of what it looks like to take up your cross and be an apostle. Verse 12, we labor working with our hands. When we are reviled, we what? When we are persecuted, what? When we are slandered, what? Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. So, again, is being a spiritual person, a person in the spirit, is it health, wealth, six-pack abs, and cash all over the place? No, it doesn't have to be, right? To be a Christian, who are we supposed to be like? Jesus. And what was Jesus like? What did he do? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should what? Follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who justly judges. For the Corinthians, they were telling Paul things like, well, if you believe like we do in Apollos' camp, we're so awesome, you know what I'm saying? We've understood the very deep things of God, and because we do that, all the blessings that come into our lives, like our monetary blessing, our spiritual blessing, our, uh, uh, like our things, you know what I'm saying? All the things that we have, all of this is because we are so spiritual, And Paul is directly contrasting what their lifestyle or what they think being a spiritual person is versus what a real spiritual person is. A real spiritual person is a servant, whereas they're kind of displaying a uh, televangelist sort of mentality, aren't they? They're kind of displaying a televangelist mentality with Learjets, sow into my ministry, give me as much money as possible so we can build this foundation and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying those people don't do any good. That's not what I'm saying. But also I'm saying the prosperity gospel is not the real gospel. It's not. And it seems like the Corinthians have so elevated themselves and put themselves on this elite status level that whatever is happening in their lives as a result of how awesome they are and how smart they've become and how well they have bought into either Paul's philosophy or Apollos' philosophy or Peter's philosophy or whoever. And they are missing the point entirely. Paul says, you have a misguided view of what life in the Spirit looks like. You have a misguided view of what it means to be a spiritual person because being a spiritual person and, pos- uh, and possessing God's wisdom isn't just like adopting a philosophy or an intellectual system. It's not just uh, uh, deciding I'm going to act this way. Being a spiritual person is receiving what God offers, not earning or ascending to a certain level. Instead, it's knowing a person and having a relationship with Jesus. It's not about I do step A, B, C, and D. It's about I know Christ. And that's very different than the way that the Corinthians were acting. And this ought to stop us 
from boasting because we don't invent this gospel. We don't invent our own version of Jesus. We merely receive his grace. And what this does is set us up as the ones who are in need, not those who are in the elite class who will deign ourselves to give a scrap to the poor. The lowly, those who are not blessed as we. This is how the Corinthians are acting, and this is their problem. So Paul, using the example of himself and the other apostles, wants to show them that self-sacrificial humility is really what it looks like to be one who lives by the Spirit, one who understands the gospel. And this is what the gospel should do for each one of us. It's not about lording our status over others. It's about being the last on purpose. It's about esteeming others more highly than yourself in order to love and to serve them. And this way, the life of Jesus gets expressed through our lives. Uh, the last song we sang, the resurrecting king is resurrecting me. I love the way that's said. Because you right now are becoming more like Jesus Christ. And more of his life should overlay on your life. And more of his life should be expressed through the life that you're living. Now, the chapter doesn't end here. And Paul says, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, I got you. He, he starts to soften his tone a little bit to remind them of their relationship. Because again, this is Paul's hope, that he will be able to move them to hear him well and then respond well. Again, this is a father and child relationship. This is a pastor to his spiritual children relationship. So let's continue on, verses 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. See the, see the subtle difference of intent there? Paul is reminding them, I'm not, I'm not just trying to be mean to you guys. I'm not just trying to shame you and make you feel bad about yourself. I want to warn you because you're off right now. You're way off in left field about what it looks like to be a spiritual person, and I'm trying to remind you what it actually looks like. Verse 15, For you, uh, for you have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I want you to circle verse 16 in your journal. Therefore, I urge you to what? And what was the example he just gave? I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I put myself last on purpose. Verse 17, this is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere and in every church. Now, again, this is so important, this father and child relationship, because this, this book feels a little bit contentious. You might think that Paul is just so angry at them, and he's just kind of a rude guy. And he, you know what I'm saying? That, that could be what you might walk away with, but that is not what we're supposed to walk away with. Paul isn't lording his status over them as they did to one another. He is reminding them and giving them evidence of why he's allowed to talk to them like this in the first place. He's allowed to be direct because they have an understanding. And this is why he's sending Timothy. I think there's a couple elements here. Paul's both responding to them and he's sending Timothy to them. Timothy is one of Paul's um, uh, best disciples. Timothy is one of Paul's best disciples and he sends Timothy off to the Corinthians, I think to be a representative for Paul, but I think maybe even, maybe even under the surface there. Timothy can speak to the Corinthians on their level because he, like they, are Paul's spiritual children. 
So they're not, they don't have this contentious thing happening between he and Timothy. And so Paul employs Timothy in order to speak directly to them because ultimately what Timothy wants as well for them is that they would link themselves back up to the gospel and rebuild a healthy relationship with Paul. I love how this uh, uh, last bit ends here, verses 18 to 21. Now some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. How many of you have been at home in the afternoon? Now think way back for some of us. When you were a kid, you're home in the afternoon, you're acting up, and mom yells across the house, wait till your father gets... (laughs) That's a pretty scary threat. When dad showed up... Anyways, you guys know where I'm headed. Yeah, that's what Paul's doing here. Some of y'all are arrogant as if I'm not about to come. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Doesn't that just sound like a parent-child relationship kind of conversation going on right there? Do you want to, do you want to pow-pow or do you want to talk? That's what I say with our children. Well, what would you prefer? Do you want to power power or, or do you want to talk it out? I, I mean, I'm giving them the option. You know what I'm saying? Do you want to power power or do you want to talk it out? And when they want to talk it out, man, it just flows so much more smoothly. And listen, that's what I would rather do. I would rather do that. And I think that's Paul's emphasis here is that, listen, how do you want me to show up? You want me to show up all angry and let's have an argument with one another? Or can you guys just get on the same page with me and with Timothy when he shows up? And can we just have a great conversation about linking back up with Jesus instead of being so contentious and divisive? So Paul is being stern, yes. Of course, he's like a father, going to remind them of his sacrifices for them. Yeah, he's going to challenge their thinking and their ways of living. And ultimately, he's going to ask them if they want a pow-pow or a conversation. Because what he wants is to lead them towards transformation in their thinking and in their behavior. And again, this sounds like a conversation that maybe one of us would have with our kids. To Paul, the Corinthians are his children in Christ. He shared the gospel with them, and they were born again because of his direct influence and relationship. He loves these people who are being toxic towards him. He wants them to succeed. He wants them to do right. He wants them to be just like Jesus He tells them that you have a lot of instructors. You have a lot of people feeding into your ear about what it means to be a Christian, but you really only have one father in the gospel. Essentially, what he's saying is our relationship is different. It's distinct. And because we are family, you need to pay me respect and deference. Not because I demand it, but because I love you and I'm your servant. You saw how I lived among you. You know the way that I live. I'm homeless right now for the gospel. He's not just saying it to shame them, though. He's saying it to bring them from where they are into where they should be. And Paul wants them to imitate him, imitate my example as I am trying to imitate Christ. Paul doesn't just want them to stop being spiritual babies, though. He wants them to actively re-engage with the relationship that they have with him. I think that's really the point. Paul isn't just saying, stop being babies and let's all move on. No, he spends 16 chapters trying to gently, sometimes stern, but mostly gently and lovingly move them towards 
the gospel and uh, a growing relationship with Christ that propels them to stop being spiritual babies. So let's not react negatively to Paul's words. Yeah, he's being a little bit snarky, sure. But they have this kind of relationship. Again, we're reading somebody else's mail. Have you ever um, encountered like an awkward uh, moment between a husband and a wife at their house where there was like clear tension and nobody's talking about it? Allow their relationship to be what it is before you speak into it. Does that make sense? Before we judge what Paul and the Corinthians are all about, let their relationship be their relationship. Now, I want to focus on something really important that I see from chapter 4. Paul earlier, sarcastically, talks about them reigning as kings. But then he brings up kingdom language here at the end of verse 20. I think he's creating a contrast between the way that the Corinthians were operating and acting as their own kings and the way that we are supposed to act and operate within the kingdom of God. Again, we're talking about worldly wisdom, being a worldly person, a non-spiritual person versus what it looks like to be a spiritual person because the world's power, the, world, the, the way that the world's power operates is lording status over one another, constantly posturing while using your talents to better your particular social standing. It's exactly what the Corinthians were doing one to another. In essence, they were building their own kingdoms. But in the kingdom of God, Power is not framed this way. Power doesn't look like this. Power is from living a crucified life. A life that looks like Christ. A life that Paul describes in verses 6 through 13 and in chapter 2 and ultimately summed up in the phrase being a servant. The power of the kingdom of God is adopting the mind of Christ, thinking like he thought, right? acting like he did, actually living out the new ethic that was described and modeled by Jesus. That's the example that Paul wants us to follow. And now Paul is really going to press on the Corinthians to reassess what they think is important. And I think in turn he's asking us to reassess what we think is important. So what is the power that Paul is talking about? Essentially, Paul's saying, talk is cheap. I want to see your actions. I want to see how you actually live. You talk about all these great spiritual gifts you have. Let me see them. He's, he's challenging them a little bit. They're talking a bunch, of, a bunch of stuff. But he actually wants to see the evidence of their life. He wants to see the spirit displayed in each one of them. So what does it look like to have power in God's kingdom? Is it just talking a bunch of stuff or is it actually doing something? How does somebody measure what it looks like to have power in God's kingdom? Well, power ultimately stems from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Without having accepted Jesus as your savior, asking him into your heart, starting a relationship with him, making him Lord of your life, however you've heard that phrased, that is where real power stems from because once we've made that decision, the spirit now interacts with our spirit in a really interesting and mysterious way and we become brand new creations where we get rid of the old thing that used to be in our lives the ways that we used to act the ways that we used to think the ways that we used to operate and now we replace them by adopting jesus's example and model so the way that he thinks about things we think about them 
The way that he responds to people in situations or the way that we respond to people in situations. And ultimately, if you wanted to see what it looks like to have real power in the kingdom of God, you should look no further than the person of Jesus. And he has this great distillation in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 of what it means to be a spiritual person. And as we do what Jesus did, think like he thought, acted like he acted, we will be living out our image-bearing vocations as we have our hearts and lives transformed by the Spirit of God. So what does power then look like in God's kingdom? Well, in our day-to-day, power is humility. Power is being a servant. Power is being gracious and patient with people. Power is self-control. Power is laying down my preferences for the benefit of others. Power is gentleness and kindness. Power is edifying others. Power is going the extra mile and being excellent in my tasks, no matter how trivial or menial they might be. Power is joy in others' successes. Power is owning my wrongs and forgiving others. Power is speaking the truth in love. Power is honoring another. Power is trust rather than suspicion. Power is sharing influence and prestige. Power is honesty. Power is embracing others' weaknesses and shouldering their baggage. Power is watching my words and actions and their impact on others. Power is leaning into difficult situations rather than running from them. Power is found in my weakness because I don't like that list. That's painful. That's tough. That's hard. But this is exactly what Jesus shows us to be. We are supposed to be kind of upside down from the way the world views things. This is really the right side up way that the kingdom works. And if you want power in the kingdom, it's described this way. Power is found in my weakness. Because real power is never more apparent in me than when Christ is most visible. And this is the real power that Paul is talking about. Yeah, y'all are talking a bunch of stuff, but our you humble? Are you a servant? Are you honoring others? And the list goes on. So let's round up this chapter. What does Paul want from the believers in Corinth? He wants them to be led by the Spirit. He wants them to stop creating divisions around their self-declared elitism and their status. He wants them to imitate him as they live humble lives of service for others. He wants them to reassess what they think is important through the lens of the gospel. He wants them to live in the real power of God, not just in their cheap talk. And I think this is what he wants for each one of us and what we, in turn, should want for ourselves. These first four chapters have dealt with something pretty specific. They've dealt with a gospel problem. Uh, The first four chapters are kind of linked together by this unifying idea. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? Really, the whole book is that, but... Big emphasis in chapters 1 through 4. The other chapters that are going to follow are going to display to us what's wrong when you get chapters 1 through 4 incorrect. And I'll explain a little bit of that here in a moment. The Corinthians were not living their whole lives in light of the gospel. So these first four chapters that we've done so far are Paul's attempt to refocus the Corinthians on their reason for unity, and that is Christ Jesus Everything else in the book, like links in a chain, will round back on chapters 1 through 4. Everything will be in subjection to what chapters 1 through 4 were all about. All about the wisdom of Christ or the wisdom of the world. Will you be a spiritual person or a non-spiritual person? How will you live as a result of the Spirit's influence in your life? Now, the Corinthians thought that they had outgrown the gospel. 
They thought that they had passed the 101 class and were on to bigger and more important things. Very deep theological conversations about stuff that people have, arguing, have been arguing about since the beginning of Christianity. We're going to figure it out right now in this conversation. Deep theological arguments or uh, uh, brand new thoughts from Scripture that nobody else has had that I'm now going to give you. Whatever it was, they thought they had passed beyond the gospel and were on to those important things. Now, Paul stops them with these first four chapters and says, you haven't grown an inch. You've regressed. You've shrunk Paul indicates that you can't actually outgrow the gospel at all. And the more that we think that's the basic, that's the easy stuff, that's the first thing, whatever, and now we can move on to the other thing, the more that we'll have our lives modeled after chapters 5 through 16 rather than patterned after chapters 1 through 4. Some of you are looking at me because you haven't read the book yet. Chapter 5 is about incest. Chapter 6 is about lawsuits among believers. Chapter Chapter 7 is about sexual purity. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are about my Christian liberty and how I live my life in light of being in a community together. Chapter 11 is about women and head coverings and what should be happening in a worship service. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 will pick up more of the same and talk about some really interesting stuff that we really like to debate a lot, like tongues. Chapter 15 will talk about the resurrection and how the Corinthians had gotten that way wrong and how he wants to correct that and fix their thinking. Now, I think, I'm going to use an I statement again. I said I'd do that at the beginning. I'm going to use an I statement. I'm really jazzed to get to chapters 5 through 15 because they're interesting. There's, there's really cool stuff to talk about in there. And chapters 1 through 4 are a reminder to me that, yeah, those are great, but that's the Corinthian problem. They have passed by the gospel. They think they've outgrown it, and because they think they've outgrown it, all of the issues that occur at the rest of the book that Paul has to address are because they've passed by the gospel, and they think they've outgrown it. And so, yeah, I'm really excited for those conversations, but as I was reading through chapters 1 through 4, even in my own mind this week, and I'm sure I said it out loud, yeah, chapter 4 is just a restatement of the gospel. Yeah, it's just, you know, kind of boring. And I think that Paul would look at me and go, you're a spiritual baby. <laughs> we can't go into anything else until you've got the gospel central to your life. Paul's point is that you can't outgrow the gospel. You can only grow further into more understanding, more respect, and more desire to be shaped by it. Because that's who we're supposed to be. People whose lives are changed by the gospel and then lived out of the lens of the gospel. Paul's reminder is you can't get away from it. You have to be more grounded in it. And the more that we refresh our commitment to Christ, the more that we remember him and are mindful of him. In fact, today, here in a moment, we're going to do communion. Uh, we heard a phrase this week. Communion is a covenant renewal ceremony. I was like... Three words just killed me. That was crazy. Covenant renewal ceremony. Have you thought about communion that way? I hadn't before. Not in those terms, at least. I thought, yeah, it's a moment where I have to confess all my sins so I can eat the bread so I don't get struck by lightning. That's what I've thought. But that's not what communion is. Communion is a chance for all of us collectively to proclaim Jesus Christ, to 
to use our imaginations and try to recall the events of what happened to Christ on the cross. Communion is a chance for us to refocus on what Paul wants us to refocus on, which is chapters 1 through 4, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he has sacrificed himself for us. And the more that we can put our lives and situate ourselves back on that foundation, the less issues we're going to have moving forward. Why do you think it is that Paul's letter to the Philippians doesn't have 16 chapters full of garbage? Because the Philippians had gotten the gospel right. Why do you think it is that the letter to the Ephesians doesn't have 15 chapters of garbage? Because the Ephesians had gotten the gospel right. And yeah, they needed some correction here and there, but they'd gotten the gospel correct. And when we can get the gospel correct, when we can situate ourselves in the beauty of the gospel, we can remind ourselves about Christ's sacrifice for us, when we can live out what the gospel is to us, which is Jesus' life expressed through our lives, the less issues we're going to face, at least to the degree of the Corinthians. So we have to partner with the Spirit as we attempt to be more mindful of him. We have to actually look for ways to intentionally live out our devotion to Christ, whether it's at home or work or school or wherever we go. Our desire is not just to serve others. Our desire is to adopt a servant mentality. I am a servant, not I will serve you because I'm awesome. I will be a servant. I am a servant because I am a servant. I will serve you, and I will show love to you. This is Paul's point. A life for the gospel, because of the gospel, through the gospel, and in the power of the gospel is the spiritual life that we all desire. It's real life. It's real wisdom. It's not some abstract intellectual theology thought or something way out in the ether that we can't comprehend or understand. It's a concrete existence right now, lived in partnership with the Spirit. So this is my charge to each one of us this week. Don't pass by chapters 1 through 4. Yeah, the rest of the book is cool, and it's going to get really interesting. But I think, again, I use an I statement. I think I want to know the how-tos rather than the what. But unless we have the what, we'll never understand the how-to. And what is the what? Chapters 1 through 4? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the mystery of Christ. It's being a servant to other people. Let's get that right this week. You know what I'm saying? Let's adopt this servant mentality. Let's adopt the mind of Christ as much as we possibly can. Let's recall the salvation that we experienced in Christ. If you don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus yet, if you haven't asked him to be in your heart or asked him to be a part of your life, then I would really invite you to find somebody at the back of the room. We're going to have some of our elders stationed. They would love to speak to you about what it looks like to start a relationship with Jesus because you can't have his power without his presence. And you can't have his presence until you've started to know him and started to seek him. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for each one of us. And then I want to transition to our communion. But before we pray and before we take communion together, I want to give you your homework because that's what good teachers do right at the end of class. Okay? Option A, 
is to read chapters 5 and 6 one time this week. Just, again, how much time you have, just let that be what it is. Okay, don't judge yourself too harshly for not having a lot of time or having way too much or whatever. Just do what you can with as much time as you have. Read chapters 5 through 6 once this week. Second option is to read chapters 5 through 6 every day this week, take notes, and then send your questions into 817-809-3040. You should already have that number written in your journal, so we're just repeating at this point. But if you have questions, please send those off to us. And option C is to do option B plus memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your, your love for us, first and foremost, your care for us, your desire to see us grow into your image. I pray that this week you would challenge us and you would move us to be people who are shaped by the gospel. Help us to know the what before we can do the how-to, and the what is a relationship with you. Father, would you move our hearts, Spirit, would you move our hearts this week to become intentional people who live out of a reverence, out of a remembrance, and out of a, man, a generous spirit because of what you've done for us. We're so gracious because of what you've done for us on the cross that now we're going to change the way we think, act, and live. So help us to do that this week, Spirit. Father, move in us to renew our commitment to you as often as we can remember this week and to remember the gospel as often as we can this week because in doing that, you'll begin to adjust our lives because the Spirit will bear influence on us. As we transition to communion, Father, I just pray that you would make it a sweet moment of reminding ourselves about your sacrifice. And as we do that, our obedience to you would be motivated by love because of your kindness, not out of obligation. Because of your kindness for us, it leads us to repentance. Help us to repent this morning and to live as you've called us to live as your images. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.